This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and the first week of May is Wellbeing Week in Law. The Practicing Law Institute, PLI, has programs available on demand to help legal services professionals, attorneys, and firm leaders improve their well-being and encourage action and innovation across the profession. And because it's an important topic that Chris and I actually think a lot about off the air, we wanted to get in on the action on the air. So on this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, we've lined up two excellent guests to talk about strategies and resources for attorneys and accountants. Our experts have you covered today on Insecurities. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It is good to be with you, Chris. Kurt, this is one of those times, as you just talked about, that we're really getting the practitioner's perspective. We're talking about the mental health and well-being issues that affect guys and gals like you and me across legal, accounting, professional services generally. And I couldn't be more excited to to share this episode with our listeners as well. As we talked about, you know, two weeks ago now with our guest Alex Sue, we're we're moving a little bit away from the hardcore securities regulation talk <laughs> to focus on some of those contextual elements, those personal elements of our jobs that are important, equally as important to the technical yeah. prowess. So Starting today, we've got a two-segment episode we've worked through uh, with two eminents in this space. Uh, first, Denise Permay, who is the Associate Director for the D.C. Bar's Lawyer Assistance Program. She'll talk to us about some of the well-being issues that many lawyers face from time to time in their careers, like substance use disorders, anxiety, depression, and stress, and also what resources are available for those people who may be suffering from any of those issues. Then, we'll talk with Gretchen Pisano, an executive coach and founder of P-Link Leadership, an organization that strives to fuse positivity and leadership to help professionals flourish. Yeah, Chris, I'm I'm really excited about this episode. I love it when we get to set aside the securities reg for a while and talk about some issues that are important on the human side, right? Because we can't just be, be on all the time. You can be very good at your job, but if you're not taking care of yourself, your mental health, your well-being, you're not doing some of the things we're going to hear about today from our guests, you're, you're not going to be happy. You're not going to do as good a job. So I think it's really important for us to take this step back, and I hope the listeners enjoy it. We're pleased to start our conversation about mental health and wellness with Denise Permay. Denise is the Associate Director for the D.C. Bar's Lawyer Assistance Program, also known as the LAP. Uh, In that role, she has supervised clinical staff and managed the LAP since 2006. Denise has over 25 years of experience in counseling and mental health, with a focus in mental health and substance use disorders. She regularly writes on attorney mental health and well-being for the D.C. Bar, and has presented a wide variety of trainings and educational seminars to folks in public and the private sector while working in the D.C. Bar LAP and for two national employee assistance providers. 
Denise, welcome to Insecurities. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. It's great to have you. I want to mention before we jump in that the DC Bar Lawyer Assistance Program actually has its own podcast called Toward Wellbeing. And Denise co-hosts the show with her LAP colleague, Nikki Irish. On the show, they talk about the well-being challenges faced by the legal community. You can find Toward Wellbeing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to us right now. As, as we mentioned up top, we are releasing this episode in conjunction with Mental Health Awareness Month and the Wellbeing Week in Law. We want to start the episode by discussing some of the well-being issues that affect lawyers and professionals in legal services roles, and for good reason. The rates of substance use disorders, anxiety, depression, and stress among attorneys are startlingly high. To put the issue in context... A study by the Dave Nee Foundation, a think tank for the study of lawyer depression, ranks American lawyers fifth among all occupations in the incidence of suicide. The Nee Foundation also found that lawyers are the most frequently depressed occupational group in the United States. They are 3.6 times more likely to suffer from depression than non-lawyers. An Indiana judicial branch study reached a similar conclusion, finding that nearly 45% of attorneys experienced depression during their career. That's compared to just 6.7% of the broader U.S. workforce. And it is estimated that 26% of lawyers who seek counseling admit they suffer from anxiety and depression. Meanwhile, a study conducted by the American Bar Association Commission on Lawyer Assistance Programs and the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation showed that 36% of lawyers struggle with alcohol use disorders, and nearly 21% of lawyers and others in legal professions are considered, quote, problem drinkers. 9% of attorneys struggle with prescription drug addiction. The problem isn't unique to attorneys, of course. Auditors and accountants, too, suffer from substance use disorders, anxiety, and depression at higher rates than most occupations. And Chris will say a few words about that before we close out the segment. But for now, we want to focus on attorneys and legal services professionals. So with that backdrop, Denise, will you please describe the landscape for us? Tell us what are some of the issues that lawyers and legal services professionals face? You know, well, as, as the research shows, Many lawyers struggle with high levels of anxiety, depression, and stress. This was true before the pandemic, and since the pandemic started, it's even more true. Many lawyers, many people, but especially lawyers, engage in unhealthy coping mechanisms when they're feeling these, uh, these symptoms. So they'll drink more, they'll use drugs, they'll engage in other compulsive behaviors. For lawyers, alcohol is really the, the drug of choice for a couple reasons, primarily because it's legal. So you can... You know, as an adult, you can legally drink alcohol, whereas other drugs, lawyers tend to avoid using because of the legality. But, in, you know, humans want to feel good in general, right? We, we have a hard time managing negative feelings like anger and sadness. Those feelings are aversive, aversive to us. So we look for ways to feel better. Lawyers usually turn to alcohol and it works in the short term, right? When we have a drink and we're stressed, it, it works to um, make us feel better in the moment. It calms us down. It is easy to do. It's usually readily available. It's a big part of uh, the culture, the legal culture, and also just the culture of, in the United States in general, in the world, really. 
So alcohol use during the pandemic has skyrocketed. People who didn't have trouble managing their drinking before the pandemic started have found that they've lost control of their drinking during the pandemic. When you turn to it over and over and over again uh, to feel better, to cope with stress, you, you start developing a strong relationship in your neurons, literally in your brain, with feeling stress and then, oh, I'm going to drink. So if you, it's like a pathway over and over again. So it's more likely that when you're stressed, you'd be thinking, oh, I need a drink. So that has happened much more for people and especially for lawyers. Lawyers have always had very high levels of anxiety and depression. Uh, they're often overworking, Lawyers have a tendency to see the negative in any situation. I mean, they're literally trained to do that. It's, it's, it, you need to be, you need to do that to be a good lawyer, right? See the negatives, see the problems. So it comes in handy as a lawyer to be able to do that. But it's not so great when you're a human being. It's not so great for you from a mental health standpoint to always be seeing the negative and paying attention to the negative. There's a lot of pressure on lawyers. So for many lawyers, like especially in certain legal arenas, certain types of law, immigration law, criminal law, family law, there's really a lot at stake. So people's lives are at stake. So the pressure of that is one thing that contributes. Yeah, Denise, you've talked a bit about kind of the cultural aspects of being an attorney. And, and I, I appreciate when you have to be kind of that devil's advocate for every argument that you're making or every position you're taking on behalf of your client, it can be taxing. It can create that anxiety. I feel like there also may be a generational difference in, in kind of the world that we work in now versus maybe 20, 30, or 40 years ago, and that may be more more perception than reality. It seems like leadership in, in kind of the legal and accounting professions now almost has a take your lumps mentality around dealing with those issues you talked about. Oh, when I was a staff, when I was a junior associate, I had to do X and I had to deal with it in Y way. Is that also kind of driving, you know, what we're seeing today? Is there just more conversation around, you know, the way folks are feeling and the way they're thinking? Or will there always be that kind of, you know, overcoming those obstacles or, or finding out how to deal with that stress on your own? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a good point. I I think I think we're seeing a little bit of a generation gap with regard to mental health in general. So the younger generations, the millennials, the Gen Zs, they they um they're more open, I think, more open to to recognizing their own mental health struggles. There it seems to me to that there's less of a stigma in their population. You know, many young people in high school have seen a therapist for instance, and so they get they they just it's more normalized. For them, I also have seen is there's, I think, an intolerance, I think, in the younger generations for dealing with difficult workplaces or or conditions at a workplace that are not conducive to good mental health. I mean, they just won't stand for that. They'll leave that job and get another one if they think that there's things about it, like if there's poor communication at the job, or if they feel like their mental health is not taken into consideration, or their health in general, or or their need for you know self actualization, there's there's things that that generation are just like, no, we're not going to do that. Whereas your older generations, you know, the baby boomers, and uh, even even my generation, I think they did have to uh, deal with very difficult situations at work, from the standpoint of working really hard, long hours. Probably people not treating them well, maybe a level of incivility at the workplace, and that still happens. That still is happening in law firms. I mean, and, and legal employers where there's a level of um, incivility. So I think I think you're right. There is sort of a stress line where those two generational kind of approaches to work 
are sort of colliding. Hey, Kurt, I, I would like your take too, just kind of from the outside perspective, you know, working with lawyers all the time. I kind of see, Denise, what you just talked about, that generational difference between, you know, maybe the older, you know, more seasoned folks and some of the younger folks in their comfort level. Kurt, are we seeing something similar with clients as well, uh, right? Because I think that, especially in professional services, we always look to the client to both drive the project and maybe drive a lot of the stress. Is there an adjustment from the client side that we've seen over the past few years too? Or, or are they still treating service providers in a way that you think might create more anxiety than is necessary? You know, I don't know about that. It's a good question, Chris. I think that um, the expectations are certainly the same in terms of the quality of work that you're expected to deliver. I think that in some respects, there are so many ways that we can work more efficiently than we used to. We're, we're yep. learning how to work remotely, <laughs> right? Or at this point, maybe we've, we've sort of figured it out. You know, I think the more, the more efficiently you can work and that the higher the expectations of quality are, those are creating maybe some new, some new stresses, right? You know, some of the, some of the folks who are more senior to me and my firm probably grew up in a world where they couldn't work at home, or if they did, they had to print things out and, and take them home. That's certainly not the case anymore. You're sort of, you know, quote, yeah. on call all the time. So, I mean, I do think that probably ratchets up at least the stress level a little bit, but I, I don't know, Denise, is that is that off base or do you hear complaints about the modern work environment? Yeah, no, we do hear complaints about the modern work environment. Like I just in general, I think people's experience during the pandemic has been one of excruciating pressure. And, but again, it, it's, it depends obviously on who you ask and what type of work they're doing and also what their home situation is like. A, a recent study done by the same folks who did the 2015 study on, on lawyer well-being. This one was done in May of 2020, and it was another survey by Patrick Krill and his associates. Um, and they looked at sort of they went deeper, a deeper dive under what what is the reason why lawyers are struggling so much. And one thing they saw was that for women lawyers, especially during the pandemic, it was excruciating because women still are asked to do a huge share of all of the work that's associated with a home and children and raising children. So you'd, you'd be having a, a lot of women lawyers just unable to respond to all of the pressures of you know, schooling kids at home, and especially obviously the first year of the pandemic. I mean, schools have reopened somewhat more recently, but this we're talking about like a pressure cooker of being a woman lawyer, being asked to work very, very long hours, and also somehow manage your kids at home. And all of that was just too much. And a lot of women left the law. They're leaving the practice of law. So I think the pressures are similar to, to a generation ago in, in some ways, very similar in terms of what the work is like, the long hours. And again, we're talking about generalities, right? I mean, every individual person could say, oh, I'm a lawyer and I'm like really thrilled with my work situation. And that's always going to be the case. You're going to find people who have locked into a situation that for for because of the people they work with or because of the things they do, they love it. Of course, I work in the lawyer assistance program, right? So we see people who are unhappy. So, you know, sometimes I wonder, oh, is my is my whole sort of vision of the law of the practice of law somewhat skewed because of what we're always seeing is people who need help with what with managing their situation. But the studies show that people that lawyers are are struggling. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I mean, year after year, time and again, the, the studies make the same point. So I, I don't. Yeah. You see more of it, right? But I don't think that, right. that your impressions are, are are off in any way. You know, we want to talk about some of the resources that are available, you know, through the LAP or elsewhere for for attorneys or others who who may feel like they they just need some help. But I actually want to ask a, a completely unscripted question for you, just to get your get your take. Um, before we talk about things people can do to sort of get on that path to wellness, what are some some signs that maybe someone should even think about going down that path? Why might someone seek help from you or, or from, from someone else, a therapist or whomever they reach out to? No, it's a good question because certainly a lot of the feelings that we have, especially in the past two years in response to the pandemic, in, in response to, you know, in a, the extensive inequalities in our country in response to discrimination and all of the things that in the last couple of years have just really been a source of pain for many people. And then the workload in general, you can, you know, to a certain extent, any normal human is going to have sadness and anger, you know, the war in Ukraine, you know, if you if you expose yourself to traumatic information, you're going to feel something, right? So to a certain to a certain extent, those feelings are normal. So the question would be, when should I seek help? And I would say this, if you are experiencing changes in in how you're doing in your functioning level. If you've if over the past 2 years for instance you've been drinking a lot more to cope or doing something else that's unhealthy to cope with stress. If you don't sleep the same way you used to, if you don't get enough sleep and that's different for you and you're having trouble with that. If you're not eating the same way, if you're isolating yourself from people, from those you love. If 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 you're if there's been any change like that in your sort of general level taking care of yourself, your self-care, then I would say to talk to someone about that. If you're uh, crying a lot or you're feeling sad to the point of like feeling hopeless about anything ever getting better. If you've had anything like that, a level of hopelessness for 2 weeks, that's not that much time, right? So two weeks, if you've been feeling like that every day for two weeks, definitely reach out to talk to someone. If you're having any thoughts of suicide, reach out to, to talk to someone because those are not what I'd call normal responses. Those are responses emotionally that are too difficult for you and they're having an impact on your mental health. I'd also say to look at your anxiety level. So many times when people are struggling with levels of anxiety, which again, we all worry about things here and now, we all have anxiety at times. And so it's normal to have levels of anxiety in general as a human. So if you're having anxiety that's impacting your daily functioning, if you're having anxiety levels that are causing you to avoid certain things, like certain things that make you anxious. So avoidance is not helpful to anxiety. It makes it worse. So I would say if you're avoiding anything out of anxiety, then I would say reach out for help for that too, because that's a sign that you can change your response to your own level of anxiety. No, it's it's helpful, you know, especially for folks who may be listening and, and wondering if you know, if they're approaching a point where maybe they should seek out help, I think it's helpful just to bear some of those things in mind. So you can do a little, mm -hmm. a little self check and figure out, you know, should I should I reach out? You don't have to reach a point of crisis or like, oh, do I need to reach out for help? Because, because I think the meta message under there under that sort of like, do I really need to reach out for help is that there's something wrong about have about reaching out for help. Do you know what I mean? Like there's a stigma that we are dealing with with mental health disorders and there's a stigma for in reaching out for help. Lawyers really hate to reach out for help. They they don't they're not comfortable with that. 
what where they are in their places like I'm the person who who helps other people. I don't need help. I give help. But so what I want to say is you don't really need a reason to reach out to a counselor if you feel like it would be helpful to you to talk to someone because you've got stress, then I would say that's enough of a reason. So I don't want people to be left thinking that they have to like be at some crucial crisis moment and then say, oh, maybe I need to talk to somebody. I think it's better to sort of take a look earlier and say, hey, I'm struggling with feelings that that I didn't used to struggle with and it's hard being a human. So I think because it's hard being a human, I'm going to reach out and talk to someone about it. Like that's the message I want to I want to give in response to that. Yeah, Denise, I fully agree. And it's that, you know, you mentioned two weeks earlier, which is a great framework. But if you're feeling bad for 13 days, and then you have a good right. day. That doesn't mean you shouldn't talk to someone, right? If, if, you, if you know that ahead of time or you're feeling that way, I think, uh, to your point exactly, I, it's always better to reach out maybe if you're in a place of, of wonder instead of a, a place of need to get there. So I fully, fully agree with that. I think that's a great point. Yeah, I, I would agree too. I mean, I've had conversations with lawyers and others during my career where it's like, I don't know, should I should I talk to somebody or, or shouldn't I? And I, you know, I've always felt like if, if you're at a place where you think maybe you should, you should. That you know, it's not gonna, it's not gonna hurt, right? It, it, it can only right. help. And if you get there and you're like, wow, m- maybe this isn't the right path for me, or maybe I don't need it. Well, now you know, but you shouldn't sit mm-hmm. in in wonder and and suffer with these with these different symptoms or feelings. I mean, that's right. Of you. Yes, exactly. It's, so let's say you, you know you you find yourself in a position where maybe you do want to go out and find some kind of help, or you want to talk to a counselor. That that's where the LAP and other resources sort of come into play in terms of making things available to help lawyers and others. So we we want to learn a little bit about the program, but first, just to set a kind of baseline, can you tell us who who does the LAP help? So the DC Bar LAP uh, is. We started 40 years ago, a little over 40 years ago, as a service for members of the DC Bar. And we are still a service for the members of the DC Bar. And at some point, it was expanded to include law students in DC at their six DC law schools. So if you go to law school at one of the six law schools in the District of Columbia, you can also use our services for free. And then judges. So we service members of the DC bar, law students in DC, and judges in DC. And it's free and confidential to those folks to reach out to us and use our services. We also offer consultation to family members and legal employers as well. Denise, from the actual services side, you know, what types of programs, what types of activities does the LAP push forward to that group of people to support them? We offer free and confidential evaluation and short-term counseling with licensed mental health clinicians. So people call us and schedule intake appointments with, it's a confidential, secure connection. So we are currently offering counseling, well, we are currently offering them through teletherapy and a, and a secure teletherapy platform. And then as of May 1st, we're going to be going back to some in-person sessions if if clients want. And then we offer evaluation. So it's, it's an evaluation with a mental health clinician designed to help you figure out what's going on with you and what might be causing the symptoms, what, what you could change to alleviate some symptoms, what you could do. So it's 12, up to 12 sessions of counseling with a licensed mental health clinician. We also offer referrals to other sources of like long-term therapy, uh, a psychiatrist, long-term treatment somewhere. And then we offer follow-up to make sure that that referral is meeting the needs of our client. We offer online video support groups. So we have a, a Zoom connection where people come every week, members of the support group to talk to each other. 
and offer each other support around mental health conditions and just general stress of being a lawyer. <clears throat> we also offer monitoring and drug and alcohol testing. So monitoring is if you your employer asked you to get services from the LAP and you came in and we referred you to treatment and you went to treatment, we then offer monitoring after that to um, monitor your recovery from whatever the this issue was that you got treatment for. And then drug and alcohol testing is often required in that case. So we offer that as well. Um, and then we offer volunteer mentor connections. So we have about 100 volunteers who are lawyers in recovery from either a mental health condition, a condition or a substance use condition and disorder. And those folks connect with our LAP clients and offer mentoring support to that client in a confidential connection. So, you know, many lawyers have been through struggles with mental health or addiction and then they want to help other people. So that's our group of volunteers. They, those folks folks also come with us to speak at events that we do, at outreach events. So they'll come and tell their story to other lawyers or law students so that the people hearing the story can understand, hey, you know, we are all human beings and we are all subject to these conditions and the, and the situation of how difficult it is to be a human and we sometimes use unhealthy coping mechanisms and that can sometimes get out of our control. So that that idea of like anyone can can have these symptoms. It's not no one's immune from this stuff. So those those um, speaking engagements help a lot. So those volunteers are very important to our program. And if anyone out here listening is uh, wants to be a volunteer with us, um, please feel free to email us lap at dcbar.org. We offer educational programming frequently throughout the year. So we speak at law schools and legal employers, often with our volunteers, to educate lawyers, judges, and law students about the risk that the that folks in the field face and then help raise awareness about the disorders. We just wrapped our annual DC Bar Spring Wellness Fair, for example. And sometimes some of our things are, are open um, to folks who are not lawyers. So occasionally we have an event for anyone. And our DC Bar Spring Wellness Fair, we started two years ago and it's open to anyone. You don't have to be a lawyer. So this time next year, keep an eye out for it. But we had free wellness sessions with a variety of presenters in the mental health field and it was open to anyone and it went really well. We had some really interesting presenters who we were so grateful to them for their time. So that's, that's something we also offer every year. We also write a column in the Washington Lawyer Magazine, and then you mentioned our podcast earlier. So that's that's uh, we are busy, <laughs> quite busy. <laughs> sounds like, sounds like between execution or, or maybe that kind of individualized service to to attorneys or, or those who need support, as well as that outreach, really pairs well to to support the DC Bar's mission and the folks who are members. That's great, Denise. So for for our listeners who may not be members of the DC bar or, or who live in other parts of the country, actually we've got listeners all around the world. So so who knows? Let's not let's not limit ourselves. Um, <laughs> Except South Dakota, right? right. Kurt? That's Ex the one we're missing. Still no one from South Dakota. <laughs> but what, can you tell us what some of the other resources are that are available to folks who maybe aren't in in the DC metro area? Where, where can they look to find help? Yeah, certainly. So actually have a lawyer assistance program. So there's one in virtually every state. So if you are barred, and, and some states even, you don't even have to be a member of the bar in that state. So it just depends. Every state LAP looks different. They're all there to help lawyers who are struggling with with being a lawyer or being a human. So you can look online at the ABA Commission on Lawyer Assistance Programs website. 
So the ABA Commission on Lawyer Assistance Programs is a, an, an ABA commission that exists to help support lawyers and lawyer assistance programs. So on their website, they have a, a directory to all of the LAPs in the country. And as, as well, they have a, a lot of other helpful resources on that website for well-being for lawyers. The Institute for Well-Being in Law is also a fabulous resource that people can look up online. And then they have a lot of programming as well and a lot of helpful resources um, on their website. And then for those people outside the legal field, you know, in my world, I don't, I, it's hard to imagine there are non-lawyers, especially in DC, but, but there are. And for people who are non-lawyers, many employers offer employee assistance programs. So I would say if you're not a lawyer, that to look to your EAP as a starting point, if you need to get a referral. I used to work in EAP programs before I was in the LAP. So they have similar offerings as the LAP does. So you can look there if you if you need, you know, if you're in a workplace that offers one. Excellent. We'll, we'll be sure to include links to some of those sources in our show notes so folks don't have to go searching too far. Chris, you know, I, I want to actually turn back to you a little bit because I, I sort of teased up front that you were going to tell us a little bit about your perspective from the auditor and accounting side of the insecurities house and, and maybe talk about some resources that are, that are available to folks in your line of work. So why, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I think one of the things to touch on, and obviously we're in different professions, albeit in the same kind of professional services, one of the stressors that are unique to the accounting world is really that moniker of a busy season. You know, we all know the year end comes, the tax season is here. You know, I've got good friends who've spent decades as as auditors or, or tax accountants who know that there will never be a spring break vacation for their family, right? That's just it's, it's not part of what their life is like, and that can be a time that even though it's known, it doesn't really remove the stress or, or the anxiety or the issues that develop with it. The other kind of element about accounting that is hard to grasp, and maybe I think it's similar to, to attorneys in a lot of ways, being wrong is unacceptable. Having a math error, making an inappropriate analysis, getting to a place where you don't get the right answer when you present it to a client is really damaging from a reputational perspective, from an expectations management perspective. And I've sat in those meetings where we're going over that analysis, that result, that answer, that damages calculation for the 11th time. Are we sure? Because if we're not sure and we, and we hand that off to someone else, we can be in a world of trouble if that comes back to us. So those kind of pressures are similar, if not complementary, to what you might see in the legal profession. I think that organizations like the AICPA nationally, as well as the state society, CPA societies in, in every state, have really put the pedal to the metal in the past 15 years to deal with the folks that are their membership base. It is no longer just an advocacy and organizational networking group for folks. It's a support center. Similar to the LAP at, at DC Bar, all of the state-based organizations, as well as nationally and even internationally in certain cases, elements of mental health and wellness are baked into a lot of what CPAs are looking for. I, you know, as part of breaking the stigma, I work with our EAP here at RSM consistently. You know, that's something that I know I need a, a monthly check-in. And it doesn't mean that I'm having a bad month or a good month because those come and go. Uh, but being able to share kind of a prolonged experience with someone who can understand from a specialty background about maybe the things that I don't see and what the causes and the responses are to stress, to anxiety has been supremely helpful to me. 
And so I'd encourage anybody in the accounting world who's feeling those pressures to speak with those they're comfortable talking to. You know, oftentimes it's who do I go to? And, and everyone says, oh, go to your manager. Well, maybe your manager is part of the reason why you're struggling or, or part of the, the driving for what your anxiety is. So I'd encourage anybody to look outside of kind of their normal, normal course to get that fresh look to get that second opinion, if you will, on how they're feeling. It's tough, you know, Kurt, like we've talked about with our professions, being wrong is is unacceptable. Delivering things late or to less of an expectation than originally thought of, whatever the reason, can lead to tough conversations with clients or, or management. And those things really add to the day-to-day -day life that can make accountants and, and attorneys feel less than or feel more pressure than they should have. So I'd encourage anybody to reach out to, to the organizations and societies that are available to them. I've been very impressed with the AICPA's response in the past 15 years or so. And actually, the, the second conversation we have today is going to be with one of those leaders who's helped support the accounting profession and talk through a lot of the ways that we can respond to our daily lives with a little bit more resilience, with a little bit more positivity, but also, you know, get over those obstacles and know that they're going to be a part of our lives going forward. Hopefully going to lead some folks to, to a better place than maybe they feel like they're in now, or just a realization that maybe it's not as bad as you might think. You know, both the external stressors and the internal analysis of those, I think, are ways that we can put ourselves in a place where we need some support and some response. So hopefully uh, the listeners here of today's podcast can, can learn a little bit more, Denise, about about the LAP at DC Bar, as well as uh, the podcast Toward Wellbeing. I know, Denise, we could talk for hours on insecurities here <laughs> and not cover, you know, a tenth of what you all, uh, you know, see and deal with every day. So I'd encourage all of our listeners who are interested in hearing more from Denise and the DC Bar's Lawyer Assistance Program, check out Toward Wellbeing. Check out the DC Bar programming at dcbar.org. Reach out directly to Denise and the Lawyer Assistance Program because uh, they're here for, for you all, for our listeners and for us. And I think it's important that you utilize those resources as needed. Yes, and absolutely. Thank you. Denise, thanks so much for being on our show today. Uh, you know, we really appreciate the conversation. We're hopeful we can help move people toward well-being with this episode as well. Thank you, Chris. And thank you, Kurt. Thanks so much for having me today. For our second segment on today's special episode, we're excited to have my longtime friend, Gretchen Pisano. Kurt, give us a rundown of Gretchen's background. Yeah, happy to. So uh, Gretchen, first and foremost, is passionate about fundamentally changing the way people work and lead. She is the CEO and co-founder of P-Link Leadership, an organization whose goal is to accelerate positive change by fusing the sciences of human nature with the discipline of leadership to transform the world of work. Gretchen and her team refer to this fusion as the positivity link, or P-Link, hence the name. Gretchen has spent more than 25 years in coaching and strategic development, and she's worked with senior teams around the world in finance and technology, in the military, and social benefit organizations at places like Amazon, Capital One, Chevron, FedEx, Fidelity, Hilton, Intel, the Oprah Magazine, Pew Research Center, Smithsonian, the U.S. Air Force, the list goes on and on and on. It's an impressive list. Gretchen also has a master's in applied positive psychology from UPenn. She is a professional certified coach through the International Coaching Federation, a certified practitioner of the Leadership Circle System of Leadership Development, and a certified Dare to Lead facilitator. Just a side note, I'm especially excited to hear some of Gretchen's perspectives today because 
tucked into those impressive academic and professional accomplishments are connections to two people whose research and words have meant an awful lot in, in my life and, and changed the way I think about what I do, Martin Seligman and Brene Brown. So excited that she's learned through their schools. In any event, as I've mentioned, she's worked, Gretchen has worked with a number of large organizations, notably for our purposes today. Gretchen facilitates the AICPA's Leadership Academy a program that started in 2010 to foster the next generation of CPAs with strong leadership ethics and a commitment to service while growing in their careers and in their leading roles in the CPA profession. And not coincidentally, Chris, I think that is where you met our guest uh, as she mentored you for a while starting in 2012. That's right. Gretchen, we're so glad to have you on. Thanks for joining us here on Insecurities. Wow, Kurt, I think I can go home now. Like I could just call this a good day. That was just an amazing introduction. <laughs> well, we'll be sure to bifurcate this bio clip and just send it right back to you for, uh, for please, future use, please Gretchen. Please do, please do. No, thank you um, very much. And I'm happy to be here with both of you. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Let's transition to, you know, the, the conversation we want to have today about some of the things that you help your clients with, Gretchen. But let's sort of start at the beginning. Why don't you tell us a little bit about P-Link leadership and then a little bit more about the positivity link itself? Yeah, yeah I'm happy to. So P-Link leadership is exactly as you described. We do executive coaching and leadership development. I think what's super interesting about us is, well, a couple things. One is that we're 100% virtual and have been since the day that we started. So our team, both staff and coaches, cover the United States, and it allows us to work around the globe, sometimes in person and oftentimes virtually. Where the idea kind of initially came from is that I spent the early part of my years doing a lot of facilitation around development of strategic plans with senior teams. And somewhere around 2003, I noticed that like the single biggest obstacle to successfully executing on a strategy was human nature. And nobody was paying attention to cultivating the humans in the organizations. You know, at that time, culture work was about putting values on posters that hung on the walls and about doing team building activities. And I thought, ooh, there's just so much more, so interesting the way people think and so interesting that when people get scared, which they do when change is happening, they get very individualistic, very focused on themselves. And they actually, you know, it activates the fear centers of the brain and they get less collaborative and less creative, right? When you need them to be the opposite. So that was what really started my my pursuing of coaching and then ultimately my exploration of the Applied Positive Psychology program. I was really lucky to be the fifth graduating class, so I was actually taught by some of what they call the titans of positive psychology, um, Barbara Fredrickson and Martin Seligman and Chris Peterson, and it was just an incredible opportunity to then blend everything that I was learning about how human beings operate and what conditions allow them to flourish with what I knew from practical experience in terms of leadership and leading and following and organizational dynamics. So that's P-Link and really this idea, you, you said it beautifully in an introduction, of fusing positivity with the discipline of leadership. 
And what we're really talking about with positivity is positive energy, right? The ability to look to the future and find the opportunity, the ability to allow your own energy to expand out, elevate other people. And a lot of folks still aren't thinking about that as an asset. So that's that's really my mission. That's the ethos of P-Link leadership. And, and that's what we're doing in the world. Anywhere people are interested in bringing that into their organizations. We want to talk a little bit about some of the things I recall back from the Leadership Academy and, and the early days of, of P-Link and really some of those, I call them frameworks, you might call them a conceptualization or some of the phrases that I think are shorthand for these broader ideas. And fun part for our listeners, Gretchen, is we're going to ask you to deal with some of the situations that Kurt and I might experience uh, maybe recently or, or maybe from a work uh, workplace perspective uh, to apply those those ways of thinking or those concepts, maybe for a better result or, or just a better understanding of what's going on. So one of the things, Gretchen, you talk about a lot is emotional agility and well-being. Mm -hmm. What are we talking about when we say emotional agility and, and how do you see that playing into a positive leadership uh, mentality? Awesome. Great question. Uh, so think about emotions and how we deal with them on a continuum. And on one end of the continuum is spiraling out. And this is people who have outsized reactions. They might get upset. Their tone of voice might change. There could be tears. There could be, you know, crossed arms and clenched jaw. That's kind of one end of the continuum spiraling out. And then the other end of the continuum is compartmentalization. Right, where people kind of shut that emotional piece down and put it in a nice, tidy little compartment not to be visited. And you often hear this in organizations um, and in, in conversations and people say, don't get, don't get emotional about it. What I would want people who are listening to realize is that neither one of those is agile. We tend to criticize spiraling out and we tend to value compartmentalization but neither one of them are agile and both reap consequences that are not positive. So when we talk about emotional agility, it means that a person understands emotions and, and has some emotional literacy, meaning they have some words beyond mad, sad, and glad to describe how they're feeling, which is important. Like when I'm in a room and of you know, 150 people, I ask people, what is your favorite positive emotion to feel? And somebody raises their hand and they say, riding my bike. And I said, well, that that's great. That's an action though. What's the emotion you're feeling? And this sort of look comes across their face where they're like, oh, like I'm, I don't actually know. Let me think about that. You know, happy. Well, like there's, hundreds of emotions that a human body is capable of experiencing. So we want people to have some degree of literacy to be able to describe the sort of levels of intensity of any emotion. And then when to notice and name that they're feeling the emotion rather than lock it away or discharge it because it's so uncomfortable. And then to get curious because every emotion has something to tell us. One of the exercises we do in some of our workshops is we have people write a two-minute marketing pitch for an emotion that they really don't like to experience. And they're always surprised, you know, if they have two minutes to sell the value of that emotion, like humiliation or betrayal, 
which they would say like, no way, but they have two minutes to like make the pitch and sell it. They are surprised to notice what is, what is in this emotion for me and what do I have to learn from it? And that is being an emotion that is being emotionally agile. And when you can do that, you can choose your response in any given situation rather than react to it. And when you start regularly being able to choose a response rather than instinctively reacting, your outcomes start to change. All right, Gretchen, your your leadership and your thoughts are, are excellent. Uh, up in the clouds, let's put it down on paper with a hypothetical situation. Again, no names basis. I won't say if this is me, Kurt, or someone that we know. As legal and accounting advisors, we are often stuck kind of in the middle between you know a well-meaning client and, and hopefully a well-meaning regulator. Oftentimes, we are sat between businesses that may have erred or, or be alleged to have erred in an accounting or a legal way uh, that the, say, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, is interested in. You know, we may be asked to advise this client with a few of these issues in mind, right? Number one, the client may be upset or offended that they've even been called out for an accounting irregularity and, and may want to stonewall the regulator because they're always right. And number two, the issue may be really complex and difficult. There might not be a clear answer related to how this specific financial report should have been put together. And then three, I mean, we're dealing with uh, a really large and, and you know, advantaged or a really sizable opponent, if you will, or a regulator in the SEC that can really limit the ability for the business to to go forward, for their stock price, for you know how their operations run in the future. So we've got all these different ideas coming on. How can how can Chris and or Kurt or both of us be emotionally agile to help out our client, the SEC, and and resolving this matter? Such a great complex scenario. I'll say I, I, maybe it has happened to one of yeah. us recently. I yeah, won't say yeah, who. Yeah, maybe. So, I mean, let's just be clear. Like, not there won't be a one-size-fits-all. So hopefully this example will help people think about it. If you could describe, hypothetically, a cup, use a couple of adjectives to describe what you, as a professional in that situation, will just, you know, either one of you or both of you can chime in. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. What would be... Th- an adjective or two for how you feel in that situation. Kurt, I'll defer to you uh, if you'd like to start. I I just feel pressure, responsible, you know, stuck in certain ways, right? Between that immovable object and that unstoppable force. Uh, Kurt, what are your thoughts? It, it, Maybe you it, handle it, it better on than the I personalities, do. Right? Like I think in the hypothetical, the the reactions you're describing are are fairly typical, right? So. Sometimes you just feel empathetic, you know, sometimes you may feel exasperated. It, I mean, it really just depends, I think, on some of the personalities you're dealing with on the other yeah. side. So great. Like you guys just covered a continuum right there, right? Between, between empathetic to feeling that heavy weight of responsibility and, and to exasperated. So the first thing I think to do, the emotional agile, agile response is to notice that if you're in a fight, flight, or freeze mode, you are reacting versus responding. So you want to like pause, take a breath, notice. And so, and what that's going to look like is if you're in the fight mode, you're going to be, you're going to be wanting to, you're going to have a sense of aggression. You're going to be wanting to, you might feel trespassed on, you might feel the emotion of anger if you're wanting to flee, you know, you're want you've got that kind of sick pit in your stomach, you want to 
just ignore the situation. You want to uh, blame, you know, to kind of get rid of it. And if you're in freeze mode, it's like, that's the stuck. Like, I don't know what you want to do. So that that's the very first thing to just check in with yourself. Am I, is the way I'm feeling a fight, flight, or freeze response? So you can kind of ground yourself and then say, you know, what do, what am I feeling? What, and then what do I want to be feeling? So if I am feeling responsible, I want to check in with myself and say, and get clear about responsible for what and how much of this is mine versus other people's. Like sometimes our job is just to make visible what's already present in the system, not to fix it. That's somebody else's job. But it's our job to make it visible and then to be able to have the courage to hold steady with that. If we're feeling as exasperated, we want to get clear about like what components of this thing are exacerbating me and what, how do I want to be feeling instead and what would help me move closer to that? So I think, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's, I, I'm trying to swallow that down, the, the, the notion of not, not fixing everything. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, there might be some times where it is your job, but a lot of times it's not. And, and a lot of people who get more senior positions, they got rewarded for fixing things and solving problems. But as a leader, as you ascend that leadership ladder, you will do your best work through other people. That is really hard for leaders to get and to let go of, of solving every problem versus helping other people solve their problems. And I think in that role, in that advisor role, you can often be put in a situation where where clients are looking to you to just say, well, I don't want this problem, even if I was the one that created it, or I had a part in it, I want you to make it go away, or I want you to fix it. And that is can be a heavy weight on the shoulders if you see your job as solving other people's problems that they've created versus helping them see the problem clearly and find a path through it. Whew, all right. I feel like <laughs> knowledge bombs <laughs> left know. and right here. I know. This is Definitely. awesome. Yeah, you're like, I gotta write, we're we're I gotta pivoting write as down. we speak, Gretchen. I gotta write this down. But you know what we're talking about in the emotional agility component part of that is like that negative energy will burn you up. That is not fuel. That is that takes away. You know, you're burning it. So if you notice yourself walking around angry, feeling trespassed on, you know, jaw super tight, shoulders up around your ears. If you notice you go home from work and you take out your worst behavior on the people you love most, that you need to notice. Like, okay, I am not having an emotionally agile response. How do I step back? Notice what I am feeling and then think about what I want to be feeling and ask myself, what do, what is one action I can take that moves me closer rather than further away from how I want to be in this situation? 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's actually a perfect segue to our second hypothetical. Gretchen, you're really just leading us through this, which I which I appreciate. <laughs> you know, one of, is one of the this? concepts I that I know you you've talked about before with Chris or with clients is uh, this idea that there is a difference between well being and well suffering. So we've got a hypo for you about that. But first, can you just sort of help us define the terms and and in particular maybe what do you mean by well suffering? Yeah. Well, um, okay, I'll get to well-suffering, I promise. I'm going to talk about well-being first because as recently as the 1990s, the focus was on happiness and the researchers were looking at what makes people happy, right? The holy grail of, of how do I be happy, don't worry, be happy, all of that. And what they realized when they really started studying it, and keep in mind, without going into a whole huge history of positive psychology, but keep in mind that for the first 125 years of the profession of psychiatry and psychology, research was only looking at half of the human condition, which is what happens when people suffer trauma. It wasn't until Seligman wrote Authentic Happiness and and the optimistic child and blew open the doors on this whole idea of the other side of the of the human continuum. And so when they started studying happiness, they realized that truly it's an emotion, not a state of being. And in positive emotions last an average of 60 to 90 seconds in the human body. So if I if if you or Chris were a, a subject in a study and I was using an old fashioned pager to ping you and say, Hey, rate your level of happiness right now on a scale of one to 10. Your answer could change, you know, in a, in a tiny short window in, in a 15 minute window or a 30 minute window about where you were in terms of happiness, which makes it a very unstable construct to measure human flourishing with. But well being is the, the, is the state of, of being. It is a, you can be unhappy and still be in a place of well-being. You can be physically ailing and still be in a place of well-being. It has to do with that core and where you are with yourself and, and in the world. So when we talk about what we're striving towards, happiness and positive emotion is one component really of five, which we may get into, but that positive emotion is just one component. It's not the end state. The larger state we're looking at is well-being, that sense of groundedness within ourselves, no matter what's going on around us. Well-suffering. When you think about the human continuum, you can, I, I like to describe it, and this is actually something that Martin Seligman shared in the very first a week of our master's program that's stuck with me. And so if you just imagine us on a continuum for the sake of simplicity from plus 10 to minus 10 with zero in the middle and zero being neutral, many people live at somewhere between the minus two to the plus two. And when you you think about that it that way, you can see that you know zero to minus 10 is the state of the human condition when some kind of trauma has been suffered or there's a psychiatric diagnosis. And that is the domain of therapist and therapeutic interventions. Zero to plus 10 is the, is the realm of well-suffering. It's where the frequency, intensity, and duration of some of the things that occur in just 
human life are not so much that they stall us out. But when we're living in that plus one, plus two, plus three, plus four, we have this sense that life could be so much better, or I could be making a bigger impact, or the things that, you know, what I'm doing could be more meaningful. That's well-suffering. And that's the realm of coaching. And when we are able to work with a client, or and in many cases a leader, because that's the domain we choose to work in, because they're multipliers, leaders are, they say, oh, wow, you know, I can go from operating at a plus three, plus four, to operating at a plus nine, plus 10. And it, it's a fundamental shift, and it's a change in life experience. And Chris, you would have remembered me saying, you know, like, this body you're in, this is the ship that you got to travel the planet. That's right. And you, you got one of them. And so <laughs> how do you how do you really make that magnificent life just what you want as opposed to something you can tolerate? All right. So uh, thank you for clarifying. That's, that's really helpful, actually. And, you know, I, I'm not sure that I was conceiving while suffering in the way you just explained it. So, you know, I'm learning here too, but uh, we want to hit you with a second, uh, with a second hypothetical, you know, totally hypothetical, as Chris said, <laughs> these, <laughs> we're just <laughs> pulling these out of thin air. Uh, but so let's say we have a so-called rising star in the legal profession who is continuing to win big cases, is highly praised by colleagues, earns productivity bonuses, and seems to be on track to become partner in a major law firm. Here's the rub. This rising star is beginning to question the value in her work or, or how to value her contributions. She feels constant pressure to perform well and keep winning. She wonders how helpful she actually is to clients, and she's beginning to question whether the rewards for a job well done are a fair trade-off for the stress and anxiety she feels. So let's look at that through this paradigm of, of well-being versus well-suffering and, and hear what advice you might have. So think about how to answer this in a, in a succinct way. What you're describing is a, a lot of achievement and a lot of social capital that comes out of those achievements, right? Because those achievements matter to other people. So you get the accolades and, and that feels good. Like it feels good to and to get that extrinsic reminders and and publicly acknowledged in a way that says, oh, okay, you know, you're you're on the right track. However, when we think about a life well lived, it's there are four other domains that we need to be thinking about. One of them is positive emotion. Am I getting enough of that to fuel me? Another one of them is engagement within. Do I know myself? Am I growing and evolving within myself? Am I spending time to help connect the dots between what I already know and what I'm learning? Another one is relationships with others, right? We are incredibly social creatures and those relationships with other people really matter. And I will just give you a short story. I had a client, a senior executive client who came into my practice and said to me, I don't even know if I like myself. It's been so long since I've spent any time with myself. And so, and then the fourth one is meaning and purpose. Like, it matters to us that we matter. When we get to the end of our life, we want to know that the things that we invested ourselves in and the people that we 
connected with and fostered that it mattered and that we mattered. We're as much wired for that as we are with the negativity bias. And so what this hypothetical person is talking about is saying, well, you know, I've really over-indexed on the achievement bucket, perhaps at the expense of time with myself or relationships with other people or positive emotion and a big time meaning and purpose is missing. If that person were to come into my practice, we would actually walk them through the, the, what we call the PERMA model and, and these five domains and have them evaluate how they're invested in each of those domains. Those five domains are evidence-based, comes out of the realm of positive psychology. It says these five domains contribute to a life well-lived. And it's not a fixed formula. You have to adjust as, you, as your life um, evolves. But it sounds like she, um, she's over-invested in one and at the expense of others. And what happens when we get there is we think, oh, well, that means I have to quit. And then when we contemplate quitting, we think, well, really? Like, I'm going to walk away from this salary. I'm going to walk away from these accolades. I'm going to walk away from a future partnership. That doesn't feel really good either. But really what's needed is a rebalancing of the portfolio. And that can sometimes, oftentimes, mean just changing proportions versus completely walking away from something. I think Kurt and I are both left speechless. <laughs> That's a great way to to talk about you know the perma paradigm and, and how that goes. Uh, Gretchen, I'm hopeful that the past few minutes with you are a positive experience in our listeners' <laughs> lives. I know it always is for me. And and in planning this episode, I know Kurt and I were both very excited to share with you. Thank you so much for joining us again during this very important Mental Health Awareness Month and the Wellbeing Week in Law. Gretchen, we're so glad to have you on. Any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners of Insecurities with? I do. I, I wanted, This came up for me while we were talking earlier. I want to be clear that like, <clears throat> if you're having mental health challenges, then you want to seek the help of a helping professional a therapist, they have the tools and the techniques to really resolve that. And that has to do with frequency, intensity, and duration, right? Like if you're experiencing symptoms that are making it hard for you to go to work or to sustain your relationship. If you're um, experiencing what we've been talking about on this um, episode around well-suffering, then you can use many of the techniques that we've talked about or engage with a coach. But I, I just want to flag that because it's important that we take care of ourselves along the whole continuum and that sometimes we can intervene on behalf of ourselves and other times we need the support and inspiration of a helping professional. So if we're going to say, we're going to kind of wrap up on a high note, we think want to think about what are three things that I could do to help me keep my promise to my future best self? So number one, is spend at least 10 minutes outside today. Those outside sounds of nature matter. It helps us recognize and notice that we're part of something larger than ourselves. That's number one, 10 minutes outside. Number two, pick three things daily that you're going to accomplish before you lay your head down on your pillow that night. I call this the daily pick three. And it's <laughs> like, you might have 20 huge priorities. But in the morning, you're going to ask yourself, what are the three things that I'm going to accomplish today before I lay my head down? 
And then the third thing is delegate at least one thing today. It means every day you're delegating something. And you have to pause long enough to ask yourself, do I actually need to be doing this? Mm-hmm. Does it actually have to be me? And you delegate. Delegate like a boss and just start. Frequency is more important than the size of what you're delegating. Just delegate something. So that's your three things. Ten minutes outside, the daily pick three, and delegate one. We love it, Gretchen. Thank you so much for the practical, the emotional, the supports, you know, as, as I talked about with Kurt earlier, you've meant so much to a lot of us in the CPA profession because of your work with the AICPA, and we're happy to share those messages with our listeners. Thanks again for coming on with you us. You are welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guests, Denise Permay of the DC Bar and Gretchen Pisano of P-Link Leadership. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at EkimoffCPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.